Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. How's everybody doing this morning? Um, when we first started Waterstone, we wanted to make sure that missions was part of our heart. It was really important to us. So we made a decision early on to take 10% of whatever came in and make sure that went outside of us towards uh, reach of the gospel. Because we believe where your money is, that's where your heart is. And we want that to be part of our heart. And, and part of the reason for that is it fit into our mission and vision as a church. We've always talked about the kingdom and, and proclaiming it and demonstrating it. And we want to do that not just in our own lives or in our church or in our community, but, but locally and globally. Because we think we're part of something bigger than ourselves, the advance of God's kingdom around the world. So I was excited when we uh, were able to put together a day that uh, we could focus on the global task. And when we were thinking about that, we couldn't think of, there you are. Why are you standing behind me? <laughs> Gosh. Um, anybody who, who we, we were trying to think who would be great to, to articulate that vision. And uh, Jeff Denlinger came to mind. Can't think of anybody better to do that. Jeff has uh, been on the mission field uh, in Venezuela for Philip Philippines. That's right. Not Philippians, Philippines. Yeah. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Pretty sad for a preacher, huh? Well, you know, you're used to saying Philippians. I know. <laughs> uh, then Venezuela. Then he moved back to the States and uh, has been part of World Venture and now is the president of World Venture. Most importantly, in 2009, he came and Christine came to Waterstone. So they've been part of our body and understand our heart and our vision and have been part of that. And we thought it would be great to have you come and, and share with us uh, the vision of Jesus' heart for the yeah. nation. So I'm so excited that you're here this morning. Thanks. It's good to be in church on Sunday morning. Typically, it's Saturday night for Christine and I. So uh, I can go back to Saturday night and tell them there are people here. <laughs> Hey, would you join me in a word of prayer as we begin? Lord, you've heard the words that we have sung to you this morning. They are powerful words. They're words of our heart given to you in worship. But Lord, they're also words of our heart in desperation. We want to build our lives on you. And so, Father, as we come to your word this morning, would you speak through your word to us. Show us how we can build our lives on you. And as you press and crush and pull from us that new wine, may it be pleasing in your sight for your purposes in our community and around the world. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> I want to share um, a personal story right up front, and then we'll move into several passages of scripture. But for my own sake, I've written this down because I, uh, it's a powerful experience, emotional experience in my life, and I want to make sure I don't leave anything out. I've been blessed to travel to many places and visit many people around the world, 
from drinking tea in a Muslim family's home in North Africa to enjoying traditional Christmas foods with Venezuelan friends to visiting the city officials in a Macedonian city. And I've discovered that people are people everywhere. Parents have similar aspirations and concerns for their kids. But of all the places of great beauty and historic value that I've visited, there is one place I can never forget. People of simple beauty and tragic innocence in a place of sensory revulsion. I shall never forget, the vis- forget visiting an orphanage run by Catholic nuns on the outskirts of an urban garbage dump in the city of Maputo, Mozambique. On that day, I was painfully aware that all my senses were overwhelmed. The worst, perhaps, was the stench permeating the air and somehow finding its presence in my mouth. The taste of poverty. Led by colleagues, our assignment that day was simply to be with children and to hold the babies in the orphanage. These weren't just any babies and toddlers. These were the orphans to AIDS. They weren't just any babies and toddlers. These were HIV positive. They were the throwaway children. No one wanted them except Mother Teresa's sisters. The children were all under the age of five. They lay around seemingly languishing in the heat but largely listless from their high-starch diet. We entered the compound and slowly made our way to the children. For a long moment, my brain was trying to fathom what my eyes were beholding. We moved toward the kids, and I found myself sitting on the cement courtyard, waving to the two- and three-year-olds. Eventually, they moved closer. A brave little girl came forward to touch the hair on my chin. She giggled. Pretty soon, a little boy reached out his hand to touch my face. It wasn't long after those initial inquiries that the kids were climbing on my back while others sat in my lap as I softly sang the only song that came to mind. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. In that moment, I questioned, Jesus, do you love these children? Do you love me? On that day, in that orphanage courtyard, playing with those kids, I reflected on the gospel account when Jesus saw his disciples keeping the children back so as to not bother him. And he rebuked them, saying, Let the children come to me. It was crystal clear to me then, as it is now, that Jesus not only saw those Galilean kids in his day, 
he also sees those Mozambican kids in our day. Because he loves us, he sees us. I, on the other hand, need to see before I can love. God loves and he sees. And therein is the invitation, the summons, the bidding to experience God's loving heart personally and to join Jesus in his mission of introducing lost peoples to his loving Father. Today we're going to dive deep into the heart of God for the peoples of the world, capped off with Jesus' call to his followers to actionable love. We're uh, continuing in the Gentle and Lowly series, and today we'll touch on chapter 18 in Dane Ortland's book of the same title. In his book, Ortland poses these questions. What if the abstract heart of God became concrete? What if the heart of God wasn't just something coming down on us from heaven, but something that showed up among us on earth? One of the statements that Jesus often said, I only do what I see my father doing. And now this was in a context of people rebuking him, particularly the Pharisees and Sadducees. I only do what I see my father doing. So what did the son see his father doing? Well, I'd like to begin actually in Jeremiah 31. I think we have it up there. We're privileged to a conversation between Ephraim, Israel, and God, as Jeremiah captures it. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined. Like an untrained calf, bring me back, that I may be restored. For you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. I'm going to pause right there. I want us to remember all of the high points of the Old Testament and all of the low points. And this is even lower. All the failures of Israel have led them to this place of exile. All the hopes seem dashed for Israel. And here in exile, the ultimate penalty for their, their abandonment of following God, Ephraim is having this conversation. Do you see anywhere in those words, oh Lord, our circumstances are terrible. The food in Babylon is awful. We're slaves to these Babylonians. Do you see any complaint about the exile? No, Ephraim in this case is much like David, confessing the sin of his heart against God. His primary focus is his relationship with God. And how does God respond to Ephraim? Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him 
declares the Lord. This is a glimpse into the heart of God, longing for people to be restored to him. We might inadvertently draw a conclusion that this is the high point of chapter 31 in Jeremiah. It is not. It is simply a prelude to the verses that follow. For the first 29 chapters, Jeremiah continually recounts the ways in which Israel and Judah have abandoned God. Here, in the crushing weight of exile, a remnant in Ephraim, one of the northern tribes of Israel, repents, longing for God's intervention. All the while, God's deep longing, literally in the Hebrew, my bowels rumble for him. Or as we have it in English, my heart yearns for him. That Ephraim, that is Israel, would return to God. But not for Ephraim alone does God's heart yearn. Immediately following this turning point of Israel back to God is God's declaration of a new covenant. One in which he will deal with mankind's sin nature. The high point, literally, of the Old Testament prophecies and promises of God is right here in Jeremiah 31. The promise of a new covenant. See, we have the advantage of seeing how God fulfilled that new covenant in Jesus. Every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming his broken body, his shed blood, this new covenant in Jesus' blood. Hmm. This new covenant is an internal one, one of the heart, and not an external one of keeping the law. In this new covenant, everyone can know God. That is, each of us can enter into an intimate relationship with God and experience the fullness of God, the forgiveness of God in our mind, in our emotion, in our will, in the whole of our being. God promises to both forgive our sin even as he forgets our offenses against him. In this new covenant, God writes his grace law on our hearts, not on tablets of stone. <laughs> like God saw Israel in exile, he sees exiles today. And he hears their prayers, their longings to be made right with God. In World Venture, we have colleagues scattered around the world many different countries, and in many of those places, including here in America, we have colleagues who work with exiles, people who are forced to flee from their home and find or make home somewhere else. In one situation, past three years, in a major, in the capital city of an Islamic nation, Afghan refugees have been coming to find a new place to live. And along the way, over 130 have come to new life in Christ. Baptized in the name of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, from an Islamic background, now living in the capital city of an Islamic country, finding Christ. <laughs> this is what God's doing in our world. This is the news that never makes it at the six o'clock hour. Exiles 
not living, not looking for asylum, but encountering and becoming citizens of a kingdom. In other places in the world, one place in particular in Europe, Iranian refugees have come into a a community and have experienced for themselves the risen Jesus. For many, this was the vision that they've had in their dreams, only to come to a place where they can be told who that man is and have become Christ followers themselves, including, much like what Waterstone does, the public baptism at a lake in their city. God has a heart for exiles. And he hears their prayers. It isn't simply to escape the troubles of their home country. It is, much like Ephraim, to encounter the God of the new covenant for the first time. And Jesus is building his church in ways that we could scarcely imagine. Our colleagues report They're simply midwives at the right place at the right time to simply help people come to know Christ. This one whose broken body and shed blood has purchased the forgiveness of their sin. Well, I want to keep moving. I want to get to the passage that was read for us earlier from Matthew 9. And I just want to point out something here. 9.35, the first verse there. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Matthew's use of all and every is not hyperbole. Rather, this verse, Matthew 9.35, is the bookend to what he says in Matthew 4, 23, the identical verse. Matthew wants us to understand as we're reading his account of the life of Jesus, Jesus began his earthly ministry by going into all the villages and cities, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, every affliction for the people. He begins, and now here in 935, he ends this season of Jesus' ministry. But just prior to this, Matthew 4, Jesus invites four fishermen to leave their boats and follow him, and he's going to make them fishers of men. But literally, in Matthew's gospel, for five chapters, they haven't done a single thing. They've simply followed Jesus as he's done all the teaching, all the healing, all the big stuff, and they've been spectators. So if you were hoping that God would say, hey, it's great, you can come to church and just be a spectator, I have bad news for you. Jesus, in chapter 10, remember they didn't have chapter breaks back then, just four verses into chapter 10, he sends the 12 out to do what they've seen him doing. Matthew is making it clear. Jesus will change the the dynamic of passive disciples to commission them as active agents in the divine mission of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. This is a heads up in Matthew. It's about to change. 
And so how does the change unfold? Well, let's look at verse 36. When he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Let's talk about that word compassion. Obviously, we know back in the day that Jesus didn't speak English. So what does this word mean? We have an understanding in English, but what's behind this word compassion? It's very similar to what God voiced in Jeremiah 31. That yearning, that bow-gripping, stomach-crunching emotion, Jesus has right here. But it's more than an emotion. Let's not kid ourselves. This is that visceral reaction to to a scene that requires a response. You cannot be a spectator with that kind of emotional reaction. Interestingly enough, uh, this, this compassion sounds a bit watered down in English. I, I would liken it a little bit, and I apologize to a much younger crowd, but those who remember the old Popeye cartoons will remember the Popeye moment, right? Usually the storylines change, but it's the same basic story. Usually Brutus is doing something to afflict pain on olive oil and Popeye is somehow constrained until that moment you remember what Popeye says I can't stand it no more and pretty soon that spinach can gets squeezed and somehow makes it into his mouth and boom Popeye breaks free it's that I can't stand it no more it is God in Jeremiah through Jeremiah's writing I can't stand that Israel is apart from me Of course I remember Ephraim, and I want him back. Jesus looking at the people. Of course I have compassion, and I want them back. Now, Matthew puts another key word in here that we need to understand. Matthew's original audience would have immediately had bells going off in their head. You see that, like sheep without a shepherd? One of God's great complaints about the leaders of Israel, kings, priests, and prophets, were leaders who did not lead the people in the ways of God, were leaders who did not lead people in the worship of God, and instead pursued their own agendas, calling it God's agenda. A simple reminder Exodus 34, Numbers 27, 1 Kings 22, 2 Chronicles 18, Zechariah 10. God cuts loose on the false leaders of Israel. Shepherds who did not lead the sheep. In fact, in Jesus' day, what was the posture of the religious leaders? The men who could interpret the Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem were unable to recognize the Messiah when he showed up. Like sheep without a shepherd is a stern warning. And Jesus has compassion on the people. We move on in verse 37. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I I just want to put a little paraphrase in here. Plentiful is kind of a watered-down word. The harvest is huge, 
It's big. It's bigger than you can imagine. Jesus is setting the stage for the disciples, uh, and he gives them instructions to go to Israel. It's kind of their first foray into missions. But Jesus is wanting his disciples to understand that the harvest, the, the lost, the, the people who are helpless and harassed, the people who are like sheep without a shepherd, isn't simply confined to Israel. It's the whole world. And he wants them to understand that the harvest is huge but the laborers are few if we have ears to hear in our day and eyes to see there are all kinds of people on our nightly news in our communities around the world who are desperately crying out to be loved and there's a country song, looking for love in all the wrong places. Dane Ortland asks this, uh, makes this observation in his book. The world is starving for a yearning love, a love that remembers instead of forsakes, a love that isn't tied to our loveliness, a love that gets underneath our messiness, a love that is bigger than the enveloping darkness we might be walking through even today. A love of which even the very best human romance is the faintest of whispers. Deep down, we long to be loved. Not for what we can do, not for what we've achieved, but simply for who we are. To be accepted and loved. This is the gospel story in a nutshell. God loves us that way, and he's made every provision for us to receive his love. This is the message of the gospel. This is what we live out. This is how we're engaged in the world. Sharing the love of Christ, not our good works, not our best ideas, but what God has already done. Paul expressed to the Colossians kind of this phenomenon of receiving God's love and the result of that as it flows through them. Paul says it this way, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world world it was true in paul's day it's true in our day and i simply want to share a few stories a few impacts of how we at world ventures see that verse unfolding in that right before us so in the last three years 2020 2021 2022 it's kind of a dull period in world history World Venture colleagues have reported 17,148 pre-conversion relationships. That is, building relationships with neighbors, with people in the community who don't yet know Jesus. I thought this was the season of lockdowns and social distancing. 2,167 people followed Jesus in believers' baptism. 268 new churches were started. 
15,153 leaders received training in and for the church and in their community. World Venture works in 111 unreached people groups. That is, the church isn't strong enough or present enough in those peoples to be able to carry on the ministry of making disciples. We also work in other places that are considered reached. I don't put this up to brag. It's simply I stand in awe of what God does through a handful of believers in World Venture. The, the one that captures my heart is this fact that 268 churches were started in the last three years through World Venture colleagues. That's an astounding number. If you understand what goes into church planting and all the work that that requires, all the heartache that comes with it, all the lives, broken lives, messy lives of people... It's actually a testimony that the gospel is penetrating people's lives. People are encountering the risen Jesus and coming together as new followers of Jesus, telling others about him. This is what Jesus promised to do. You remember he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. <laughs> That's what he's doing. We're simply one mission agency among many around the world. Now, there's a ton of work still to go. Don't get me wrong. But this is reason to celebrate and to stop and say, God, thank you. Thank you that the gospel continues to bear fruit around the world. May it be so among us. May it be so. I, I want to come to a the conclusion here by going back to verse 38 in Matthew 9. Jesus says, pray earnestly. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. This pray to the Lord of the harvest is a powerful phrase. It is, in essence, Jesus saying, God, who's sovereign over all, come to him, beg him to send out, to thrust out, to throw out, in a sense, laborers. Laborers who will toil in hard places. Laborers who will persevere with great endurance. Laborers who will keep going even if people don't respond. Pray earnestly. This is verse 38, the actionable love that I think Jesus has for us. This wasn't simply a command given to the apostles, the disciples at this point. I think this applies to us. What does our prayer lives look like? Are we praying earnestly? One of the things that I've um, adopted into my own life is a, a discipline in a discipleship approach in North Africa. You know, where you pay, you pay a price to be a believer in Christ. You pay a price to be a member of a church in North Africa. And they have an exercise where they encourage believers to have a, a card. Just write down some names of your hundred people. People for whom you want to see God's yearning love become real in their lives. And so I simply ask, how are we doing at praying earnestly for the people right around us? Family, neighbors, colleagues at work, other students in school? How are we doing at praying that they would experience what we've experienced in Christ? How are we doing at praying, God, we desire for them to know what, who you are and your love for them, 
But God, on this list, I'm sure there's some you're going to send out. It might be across town. It might be still here in Colorado. But there will be some whom God will send out to the ends of the earth. I, th- this, uh, this idea of pray earnestly and then the send out, I, I know Jesus is saying pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out, but how does God do that? How does God send out laborers? It looks a lot like Acts 13, the church in Antioch, where the elders were, were praying and fasting, and the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I've set up for them. So they did. They, they cut them free from the responsibilities and sent them out. See, God wants us praying earnestly for the fulfillment of the Great Commission through the sending out of people. It looks a lot like Acts 13. In fact, I would go so far as to say every healthy church, every church that's walking by the Spirit of God, pulling into themselves and being transformed through the Word of God, every healthy church is continually sending people out. Not simply gathering people, but sending people. Because that is the heart of God. Well, this idea of pray pray earnestly and send out, I want to draw a conclusion. It's simply not this praying for your hundred, and quite frankly, just a scrap of paper with their names in your Bible each day, praying, God, would you do this? Pray for the opportunities for God to send people into your life with whom you can share a word of testimony, scripture, the gospel message itself. In fact, for a number of years I've been praying this on Sundays, God, would you send someone into my life this next week? Give me eyes to see and ears to hear the opportunity that I might respond and be a witness. Now, I I say this with some great uh, embarrassment. I work in a Christian organization. Everybody in our office is a believer. I'm like, now who am I going to witness to? I see these people every day. And it dawned on me one day, God sends us people into our building. When it, it was driven home to me one day as, as uh, our boilers weren't working. It was early December, and HVAC technicians came to fix the boilers. And as I came to the front door to let them in, one guy was holding his cell phone, showing the other guy a picture. It was a picture of a newborn baby. Yep, he was a first-time dad. Proud of that newborn son. And I, as I was in, uh, opening the door for them to come in, I kind of was hearing this conversation, and he holds up his phone so I can see. <laughs> I don't even know this guy. He was just so proud of his son. Oh, that's great. Congratulations. Took him upstairs so they could work on the boilers. And I went back to my office. And it was like the Holy Spirit just kind of grabbed my attention. Hey, you asked me to bring people into your life. Two guys just walked in the front door. <laughs> yeah, I thought they were to fix the boiler. I went back upstairs and I shared. Hey, you know, I apologize. I, um, I didn't really think about what you were so excited about. Would you mind showing me that picture of your son again? Oh, guys kind of like... This is kind of weird. Pulls out his phone, but he shows me the picture. And um, I said, you know, I I don't know if you guys know what we do here. We go around the world and we tell people about Jesus. You see, we're coming into the Christmas season, and we don't have cell phones with Jesus' picture, 
but we get pictures of them all over the Bible. And God wants everybody to know about his son. So when you guys are done, I'd love the opportunity to tell you more about who Jesus is. And as you celebrate your son, we can celebrate God's son in this Christmas season. You know, that's really not that hard of a witness. It's simply having the mindset, the awareness of how God is bringing people into our lives. So, pray earnestly and send out. I, I want to uh, just close with a word of prayer, if I can. Praying for us. And if I can, I'll personalize it for myself. Lord, we come to these passages, and it's so easy to gloss over the yearning that you had for Israel to return. Jesus, it's so easy for us to read you had great compassion for people. Of course you do. You're Jesus. Lord, would you give us your heart? Would you grip us much like those Mozambican orphans? Would, could, would you help us see people as you see them? And God, with that, would you somehow build, infuse, grow compassion in our lives that simply isn't enough to see? Now we have to act. And God, quite honestly, it's hard for me to remember what I've prayed. And I certainly want neighbors and friends and family to experience your yearning love. So, God, would you help me pray that way? And, Lord, for the lost that are all around us, right here in our own community and many, many more around the world, God, would you help us to see the opportunities you give us in everyday life to be on mission with Jesus, introducing people to the Father who yearns for them. God, make us people who look like and live like Jesus on your mission. To that end, we pray and commit ourselves. Lord, this week, this week, send us to someone or bring someone into our life who needs to see in our lives and hear from our voice the love that they can have in Jesus. And Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't yet know you, I pray, Lord, that today would be that day Today can be that day. Amen.